Thank you, Dan and Lanny and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful music today. I hope you will pray. We have 225 campers in our youth group who headed off this morning. You've heard that already, but I hope that you'll pray for them, for their safety and for spiritual awakening within each one of them as they're at camp this week. We continue our sermon series from 1 Samuel. This morning we'll be in chapter 18 and in chapter 20 and a little bit into 2 Samuel. So if you'll open up now to 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1, uh, Knitting Souls is our title. Each one of us, every week, comes into contact with hundreds of people who never look beyond our surface appearance. We have dealings with hundreds of people every week who in the, the moment they set their eyes upon us, the question in his mind or her mind is, what use can we be to them? There are hundreds every week who take one look at us and make a snap judgment and then slot us into a category so they will not have to deal with us as unique individuals, as real persons. They treat us as something less than we are, and if we're in constant association with them, we do become less. And then someone enters our life who isn't looking for someone to use, is leisurely enough to find out what's really going on within us, is secure enough not to exploit our weaknesses or attack our strengths, recognizes our inner life and understands the difficulty of living out our core convictions, and confirms what is deepest within us. A friend. It's a great thing to be a friend, to be a Jonathan. Without Jonathan, David was at risk of either abandoning his vocation and simply going back to caring for the sheep or developing a murderous spirit of retaliation against a man who was despising Saul, who was despising the best within David. He didn't either. Through Jonathan's constant abiding friendship, he received a confirmation of Samuel's anointing that he would indeed be the next king of God's people. He had imagination for king work because of the friendship of Jonathan. Jonathan, a friend. Neither weak nor timid, neither a loser nor a coward, in fact, you'll remember a few weeks in our sermon series back in chapter 14 that Jonathan is indeed a great warrior in his own right. The Philistines were tired of Saul's little victory, so they gathered together 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen to do battle. They are described by our editor like the sands of the seashore. Saul divides his army into two parts. Saul is out doing battle, and Jonathan is back at the camp, and the Philistine outpost is in between with steep sides on both between. Remember, Jonathan calls his armor-bearer and says, let's go. God might use us to attack the Philistines, just the two of them. 
We'll ask God for a sign. We'll ask, shall we come up to you? If they say no, stay down there, the Philistines, and we'll know we're not to go to war. But if they say, come on up, we want to talk, like armies do sometimes before they wage war, then we will know that God has delivered the Philistines into our hand because God is not restrained to save by the many or by the few. God is not restrained to save by the many or by the few. They give the shout, the Philistines say, come on up here. Jonathan said, God is at work with us, just the two of them. They climb up the steep cliff and then they begin to wage war themselves. There's a cloud of dust. The rest of the Israelite army, which have been hiding in the caves as cowards because of the numbers of the Philistine force. Now they come out and the war begins all because of Jonathan. What I want to remind you is that Jonathan is a strong warrior. He has a strong character. He's a man of passion. He's a man of courage. He's popular with the people. Jonathan has every attribute to be king of Israel. And yet, in our passage in chapter 18, he takes off the royal robe, the royal armor, the sword, and the bow, and gives them to David, the shepherd king. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came about, when he had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan, there it is, was knit to the soul of David, knitting souls. And Jonathan loved David as himself. And Saul took David that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. Jonathan stripped himself to adorn David, the one who would take his place. It was a symbolic act, taking off the robe, handing over the sword and the bow, indicating that Jonathan knew that God had chosen and blessed David to be the next king of Israel. The crown prince handed over to the shepherd king. In fact, down the road in the story, Saul himself says to his son, Jonathan, don't you realize as long as David is alive, you will never be king. He has to die. And Jonathan says in 1 Samuel 20 to his own father, what has David done against Israel? What has David done against you? I want us to look at the story of knitting souls between Jonathan and David. And I want us to find some jewels about friendship. First of all, to be a good friend, you have to take yourself out of the center. To be a good friend, you have to take yourself out of the center. Jonathan had every right to royalty, but he realized that God had blessed David, and he gave David his seat at the table. He gave his throne to his friend. 
Jim Somerville, pastor, said he had a man come into his office and the man told the pastor his wife was leaving him and he didn't know why. Pastor said, well, I don't know why either. And he thought about it. The man was good-looking, hard-working, successful, a regular church attender. He appeared to be devoted to his wife and his children. And, well, but she was leaving him nonetheless. And the, so the pastor Somerville said, sir, tell me more. Tell me about your family. Tell me about yourself. The man did. And the more that he talked, the more it became clear to Pastor Somerville that this man's wife and his children were just one of the many planets that were in orbit around him, the center of the cosmos. His faith, his career, his lake house, his Harley Davidson, everything in his life, his friends and his family were merely small planets that were in orbit around him, and he saw himself as the center of the cosmos. Pastor saw the problem, all the things in his life, his wife, his children, his career, his church, his riches, they were only important to him and as much as they made him feel better about his position and his own power. When the man stopped describing his life, he asked the pastor, well, what do you think? Somerville asked him, have you ever heard of Nicholas Copernicus? Copernicus was that 16th century Polish mathematician, the one who came up with the idea that the earth went around the sun rather than the other way around. He had had the idea years before, but he didn't say anything until he came up with mathematical proofs. In fact, it was such an earth-shaking idea that planet earth was not the center of the solar system that the sun didn't move around the earth, but the earth moved around the sun, that Copernicus himself did not dare publish it until the very year of his death. And the response was as expected. The church banned his book because the Bible, it seemed, made it clear that the sun went around the earth and not the earth around the sun. And if Copernicus was right, then the earth couldn't be the center of the universe. And if Copernicus was right, then we were not the center of the cosmos. But the man whose wife was leaving him could not see is the fact that he had not come to term with the reality that he was not the center of the universe. He needed a, a revolution of Copernican scale. He needed to make the discovery that each one of us, if we are to ever be a good friend, each one of us has to make the discovery that we ourselves are not the center of the cosmos. The pastor challenged the man put God at the center of the cosmos and not himself and make God something that he and his family were in orbit around and not expect God and church to orbit around him. One of the Greek words for conversion is epistrephine, which means to turn around, or metanoia, which means to change your mind. It's the idea of repenting and having this Copernican scale revolution in our own minds that what it means to be a follower of Christ is to be a servant 
and a lover and one of humility. When you are at the center of your own world, then God does not dwell there. When you place yourself at the center of your own cosmos and the cosmos of your friends and your family, and you've taken God off of, off of his throne and placed yourself there. I don't care who you are or what you've obtained. Until you yourself have the Copernican revolution, you are not going to be a Jonathan-like friend. I was talking to a, a gentleman who became a grandfather. He became a grandfather twice. This was the second grandbaby. And he warned his daughter that when her first son met his new little sister, that there could be jealousy of biblical proportions. It goes like this. You remember, you're a four-year-old toddler, and you walk into the hospital room, and there's your mother. How dare she with a another child, another baby? It's that moment you realize you're not only not the center of the whole universe, you're no longer even the center of your mother's universe. And so you revolt. It's a shocking moment to realize there are others who are important too. Jonathan had a good perspective. He realized that his royal family, his royal rights were all second to the center of the cosmos, to the plan of God that David had already been anointed by God's prophet Samuel to be the next king. Not only must you take yourself out of the center, but secondly, to be a good friend, you must pay the price. Genuine friends are there for you despite the cost of caring. I made a, a visit this week to a web page that is entitled Rent a Friend. Rent a Friend. You're looking for a job, you're out of work, go join Rent a Friend. I, I'm not kidding you, I'm serious. As of Thursday of this week, there were 531,434 friends available for rent. For worldwide, you can, wherever, wherever you go, whatever country you go, they will rent you a friend. Well, why would you need to rent a friend? Well, this is what they say. These are the suggestions, and I'm, I'm reading off the web page. Do you need a wing man or a wing woman? Somebody explained that to me after the service. Then rent a friend. Going to the amusement park alone? Don't do that. Rent a a friend. Want to take a hot air balloon ride, they say? Why would you get them the basket loan when all you got to do is call 1-800-RENT-A-FRIEND? Prom. Don't go to prom alone. Just www.rentafriend and you've got a prom date. In fact, it says church. Don't go to church alone. The person beside you may be renting a friend right now in the house of God. We have a room full of rent-a-friends in our midst. They're getting paid to go to church so you won't have to sit alone during a sermon. 
Rent of friends are there when you pay them to be your pal. There's no real covenant of friendship there. But real friends, not rent of friends, pay the price of friendship. Jonathan really did pay the price. He took off the royal robe. He handed over the crown prince sword and the bow. If you have a covenant relationship, it's going to cost you to honor that relationship if you put others first. We're never to be the friend who thinks about himself. Never like the two friends who were out in the woods and a bear approached and they realized this was an angry she-bear. Maybe they gotten too close to a cave of cubs. They didn't know, but the grizzly bear, the she-bear started running after them. And as they were running along, one friend looked over the other and says, I don't think we're ever going to outrun this grizzly bear. And his friend replied, I don't have to outrun the she-bear. I just have to outrun you to survive this situation. Not a real friend. Count the cost to be there. The natural approach to life is to seek power and glory and prestige and be the center. And Jonathan could have done all those things. But he didn't. In the fourth gospel, in the gospel of John, the cross of Jesus is presented under various motifs and themes. But have you ever thought about interpreting the cross of Jesus as friendship? At least John does, the one loved by Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, than that he would lay down his life for his friend. Words of Jesus in the fourth gospel. The greatest display of love is that a man or a woman would give his or her life for a friend. And thus, Jesus is casting the shadow of the cross as a death of friendship. What a passage for Memorial Day weekend. No greater love hath any man than he would lay down his life for his friend. Jesus laying down his life for us. Take off the robe. Give up the throne. Strip yourself. Give over to your friend. Here's the third thing I want you to see. That is to be a good friend, you will feel the pain. To be a good friend, you will feel the pain. Stories told by Diane Cole in an article on the responsibility to respond. There is a growing number of people today for whom only their own lives matter. Other people's suffering lies beyond their kin and their care. And people out of fear or indifference or just ignorance. They, they seek to escape the demands of friendship and relationship and love. Their hearts are closed and their imaginations refuse to reach out of their own narrow limits of self. 
being a friend means you will be vulnerable. You will get close to someone. You will let someone in the inner chambers of your heart. Someone once said that a, a friend is someone who knows the song in your heart and can sing it back to you when you yourself have already forgotten the words. Someone's life, like Jonathan and David, intertwined with your life, their world becomes your world, and you become inseparable, and you bear a great loss when you lose that friend. And sometimes our closest friends aren't blood, are they? They aren't relatives. Euripides once said, one loyal friend is worth 10,000 relatives. One loyal friend is worth 10,000 relatives, maybe just worth two even, or, or 100,000. David and Jonathan aren't family. David is not part of Saul's royal family. Jesus and disciples are not blood kin, you see. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Why don't you look at verse 41 in the end, and now I'll make the long story very short. Let me read it to you, and then I'll set it up. 1 Samuel 20, 41. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed each other and they wept together. But David the more... And Jonathan said to David, Go in safety as much as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants. Then he arose and departed while Jonathan went to the city. You remember the story. David knows that Saul has a, a murderous spirit towards David. Jonathan doesn't think that his father has a murderous spirit. Dad would have told me if he was going to kill you, David. No, David said, Saul's going to kill me. I'll check it out. You skip the table. But if Dad is enraged at your absence, I'll know he's after you. Saul becomes enraged, and the sign is, I'll shoot the arrow. And if I say to the fetching boy that the arrow is way beyond, you'll know you have to flee. If I say that the arrow is close this way, you'll know you can come back to Saul's household. David's hiding in the brush, and he hears the words that he so loathes to hear. The arrow is way beyond. They send the arrow lad back to the palace. And here in the passage I read, David and Jonathan embrace, knowing they will probably never see each other again. To be a friend means you feel the pain. And it says they wept together, and I love the passage, and David the more. And David the more. Finally, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1 as we close out. They don't see each other again. Then word comes in 2 Samuel chapter 1 that the Philistines have finally killed Saul and Jonathan. Look at verse 22. 
For the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life and their death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places, verse 26. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and their weapons perished? David gets the word that Saul, whom he never wronged, he always honored the Lord's anointed. And Jonathan, his knitted soul friend had died at the hands of the Philistines. He said, I want you to know they didn't go down easy. They drew blood in the fight, and he declares, Oh, Jonathan, your love has meant the most to me. David is vulnerable because he loves Jonathan. Someone once said that each friend represents a world in us, a world that would not have been born that person did not come into our life. That each friend represents a world within us, a world that would not have been born if the friend had not come into our life. Your life is different because of the friends in your life, is it not? You are a different man or a different woman because of him or because of her. We cannot shun friendships because we're afraid of pain. Think of that Jonathan in your life. Who is he? Who is she? To whom have you been, Jonathan, yourself? Playwright Stephen Dietz writes these words. What do we affect during our lifetime? What ultimately is our legacy? I believe, says a playwright, in most cases, our legacy is our friends. Our legacy is our friends. From a guy who does funerals every week, there's some truth to that. Our legacy is our friends. They're like living time capsules with whom we share our history, we share our heart, we share our soul. They're like walking time capsules going through life with us. They get our very best. They get our very worst. They get our rough drafts before everyone else sees the polished events. Emerson wrote, make yourself necessary to someone in a chaotic world, friendship is the most elegant, most lasting way to be useful. We are, each of us, a living testament to our friends' compassion and tolerance and humor and wisdom, patience and grit. Friendship is the only thing capable of showing us the enormousness of this world. Friendship is the only thing capable, writes Emerson, of showing us how enormous the world really is. Have you been a Jonathan? Do you have a David? Let us pray.
Oh God, help us to have the Copernican revolution to realize our own selfishness in all of our relationships, how we talk about ourselves and worry about ourselves and exert our own will and way and desires and power. And then we come on Sunday and worship a Jesus who laid down his life for his friends, who emptied himself, became obedient, obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Oh God, knit the souls in our midst in the friendship and the lordship of Jesus. Amen.